For every business challenge, there's a solution. The Big Small Business Show is made possible by MTN Business. And by Chartered Accountants of South Africa. Lead your industry with a responsible partner. Partner with the CASA today. On the menu today, but there's a difference between work you take on and work that you hunt. And hunting is also a very different thing in your space mm. than in other spaces. It's not, as we said, picking up the funds and you need legal services today. As you start to think about change, it's important to know that change is never an overnight thing. It's a journey over many, many days, weeks and months. There's absolutely no reason why you need to have a tagline, but what's great about a tagline is that it really becomes a shortcut for people to understand what the business is about and what they're likely to get out of it. Welcome to the Big Small Business Show. This show is for you, the entrepreneur. And as entrepreneurs, we need eyes behind our back at all times because we need to have perspective from 360 degrees. In an economy that's constantly changing, in an environment that seems threatening to us all the time, we have to have our wits about us and have 360 vision. This is the show for you, the entrepreneur. Let's go meet our first guest. Welcome to the panel section of uh, the Big Small Business Show. Today we've got uh, somebody very interesting in studio with us. We've got Suzanne Britton and she is the CEO of Britton Renica. They are a law firm. Is that the right way to... to to call you? Is that That's a what law we are. Firm? You're a law We're a law firm. firm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, I just want to say, you're, and I'm going to be um, direct, you're a small law firm. How does a small law firm today compete against a, a big law firm? What, what, why would I come to you versus mm. the big guys? Is mm. it just price or is it something else? It's a question I grapple with all the time. And you're absolutely right. We, we're small. We're boutique. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think much sets us apart, actually, um, and it's not just price. You know, some of our largest competitors, the big four, the big five law firms, sometimes get the job because they're cheaper than us, mm-hmm. um, which is hard to believe, but, but that sometimes happens. Um, I think it's really about what we offer. Mm-hmm. And in terms of our approach, you know, we still deliver quality, excellent service, even though we're a small law firm. It's a lot more personal. It really is. Everything is very hands-on. You know, I deal with clients directly all the time. You get senior input on all transactions at all levels of work. Um, I don't and are you think, doing commercial law? Is that your... And that's what we specialize in. Okay. We're a boutique corporate commercial law firm. We offer a wide range of commercial law services to a wide, wide range of clients. That's what we do. How do you get your clients? How, is it word of mouth or are there other ways that you're getting clients? We've been in business now for just over three years. So we've just about emerged in the entrepreneur sense. And um, so far, touch wood, it's been referral. It's been word of mouth. It's been repeat business. Um, we've been very lucky in that regard. And, and is, it, is it, you know, everyone thinks that looks at lawyers and from the outside and thinks lawyers are, wow, you're successful, it's mm-hmm. easy, you just get there, you work hard for that law degree, you open up your law firm and mm-hmm. then, you know, mm-hmm. the bucks roll in. Mm-hmm. 
Is that true? I wish it was. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the complete opposite, actually. Mm. You know, whether you're a small law firm or like myself, an entrepreneur trying to do it on your own, um, or whether you're a large, um, it, you're working in a large law firm as a, as a practitioner, it's actually quite a similar challenge. The only thing is you don't really feel it directly in a large law firm. And as an entrepreneur, you really feel it directly yes. every minute of the day. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so you know, one of the I'm just I'm just sort of um, this is a hypothesis, but mm. small businesses battle to to find employees uh, relative to to mm. big corporates. Yeah, um, I'm assuming the same is true for for a law firm. That it's harder to find a lawyer, other lawyers to come work at you versus a big name brand. I don't think it's I actually don't think it's hard to find people. It's hard to find good people. Mm. And that's across the board, mm. depending on your standard, depending on your value system. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've found that challenge myself in finding good people. Mm. Um, and I think that's a challenge that all businesses face. Um, so do you have a selection process uh, yes. in terms of how when people come through, uh, lawyers come through to join the firm? Yes, quite a okay. rigorous process, I think. Um, I think actually harder than some of the big law firms, but I think it's because you'll be working so closely with that person. You know, mm. you've got to make sure it's the right fit at all levels. Um, so we have a three-stage interview process, um, including a practical exercise. Um, sometimes it starts off with just me or it starts off with a panel interview. Um, second level could be, depending how we do it, uh, switched around. Um, so it's quite a rigorous process. And I think a lot of lawyers who've applied are often surprised. Um, that a small law firm follows this sort of intense process. Yeah. So, so just coming back to um, this, I'm trying to get similarities because mm. I, what I'm really trying to do here is to try and get the audience, the audience, the viewers to understand uh, that you, what you go through and what a small business goes through is virtually the same thing. Absolutely okay. the same. It's, yeah. It is the same thing, it's yeah. just you're selling a different product, which is legal yeah. services. Am Correct. I right? And we wear suits most you, of the time. And you wear suits. <laughs> but <laughs> by and large, it's exactly the same challenge, you know. Um, and I don't think that, I think it's, it's because law, lawyers have always been regarded at a sort of higher level, mm. you know, that there's the sort of mysticism around mm. it or shrouded in that sort of mysticism. But it's exactly the same when you strip it all down, we're all just business people. Are, are, are legal firms allowed to advertise now? Yes, they are, but there are strict regulation around it. So you'll see some biz some law firms have gone out and there are big billboards. I'm not sure if that's necessarily in the sort of realm mm -hmm. of the legislation, um, but there are guidelines being published and I for one hope that the Law Society um, gets up to speed with what businesses need in mm. terms of advertising regulation. Because that, that's really the point is that when um, if you if you aren't allowed to advertise, you know it's like you got you, you. How do you get work? Absolutely. And you reinforce a, a different system, whereas that you have to go, you know, you force just by mm. by sheer if, economics to go to a big firm. Absolutely. It's already got critical mass. And there's lots more visibility for law firms, you know. So if we can't advertise a small business and a small law firms, then the visibility angle is where we're at our weakest. And sometimes that's really what appeals to people, getting to know who is out there. You know, it's easy to say big four and everybody knows who you're talking about. You talk about the small four, mm. yeah. <laughs> where do you start? Yeah. You, you spoke about repeat business, you know, and, and so 
effectively what what you're saying is that it's not you're not doing the same thing. It's about that you get a client and then they have different legal needs. Correct. Okay. Correct. How do you? How would one, as a, a small practice, a law firm, mm. be a top of mind? Because mm. you know, the, the, you know, legal matters hopefully don't happen every month or yeah. every year. Yeah. They happen from time to time. Correct. I'd get it that if you were in a, in a in a business and there was maybe a labour law environment where there you had lots mm. of labour issues, that mm. there'd be that kind of thing. But in commercial law. People aren't doing deals, or not many people are doing deals every single week. Mm, correct. So how do you keep top of mind? I like, and, and what I said earlier about that personal approach, you know, um, I truly believe that being visible with your client, touching base, having that cup of coffee, if you're in the area, give them a call, you know, getting to know what's happening in their business, because it may not be that they're busy with the next transaction, mm. but there could be something else where they need your input on and just constantly holding their hand through various processes. And in my case, not billing for every single thing. Mm. I know that's a little bit different to how other law firms operate, but we truly partner with our clients. And so therefore we don't bill for everything, we try and hold your hand, we try and add value. Mm. And I think when you've, when you've got that relationship, clients not only give you repeat business, but they refer you mm. to their colleagues. We're gonna to have to take a break now. When we come back, uh, we're gonna continue uh, understanding particularly the, the legal industry a little bit better and trying in, in particular to try and understand the specific issues within this practice. We continue our panel discussion uh, today with Suzanne Britton, who is CEO of Britton Renica. Um, they are a law firm specializing in uh, commercial uh, transactions uh, and uh, are a small boutique operation uh, that is um, in their third year of operation. Before the break, we were talking about how they get their business and, and what we were really trying to understand is the similarities between a law firm and a, a small business and in essence it's the same thing and why I think it's particularly important to speak about that is because very often people believe that as uh, Cezanne uh, mentioned that uh, there's some mystique around the fact that mm. it's easy which it's definitely not. Mm. I want to come back now to uh, speaking about the culture, uh, the culture mm. you say you you select for your people yeah okay um, but what makes a good lawyer? So one thing is culture, that you may be a nice person, but you yeah. also want, yeah. you know, mm. a good lawyer. So you yeah. said that we're good. What makes, what does good mean? I think it's acumen. Yeah, but how do you measure that? Well, I think it, for me, it starts with good grades. Uh -huh. You know, right. um, I know it may sound very simple and, uh, but honestly, I think that, you know, not everyone's going to be a straight A student, but if you a B average student consistently, and I think that for me is the operative, being consistent. It means that you can work hard and you've, you've got a bit of smarts, mm -hmm. you know. So if I look at your grades over four years or six years, depending what degree you did, I get a sense of your acumen. I get a sense of, okay, you know, you pick up quickly, 
you can apply yourself, you know, that's sort of something I look at. And then with the consistency, it means a little bit of hard work. Mm. You've actually applied yourself. Because in this job, that's what you do every single second of the day. You have to apply yourself. You have to remain focused on what you're doing. And you've got to have an eagerness to learn all the time. Mm. You know, the law is ever-changing. You read a piece of legislation, a section in the Companies Act, and you've actually got to apply yourself. How does this work in this particular instance? How do we apply this to the facts? You've got to have an eagerness to learn about the law in, in particular, not just generally. Um, and that's what I pick up in the interview process. And this is why I follow such a rigor rigorous process. Um, one of my favorite questions, though, is who do you pick? You know, Batman or Spider-Man? <laughs> And it's interesting how people respond to those questions because sometimes you get asked weird and wonderful questions by your clients and it's mm. about how you respond in that moment. And that can really tell you a lot about someone. Who do you pick? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, I'm on a Black Panther mission. <laughs> so, so just coming back to, to um, the, 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 the lawyer, the lawyer um, well, what is the word, the, the, the lawyer icon, the icon of mm. this, this uh, lawyer? Fraternity of the law. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How do you get business when you, you're out there? It seems like you also, even though you might advertise, like, but it mm. seems that, that, that if you, you can't be picking up the phone and like, like other business saying, do you need legal services, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's a, you're very, and also the persona of, of the, the lawyer is not the one to be soliciting business. Mm. Okay, so you've got like a double whammy restriction. Mm. So, so how did you get your first client? Like client number one, you opened up your, your on day one. Was it your, your you know, family? No, fortunately not. Mm. <laughs> um, it was actually a referral. Um, you know, that's exactly what it was. And it was a referral from my, the previous firm where I worked. Um, and the client knew me and they enjoyed working with me. And on that basis, they approached my previous firm and said, well, They'd like to continue working with me um, on a particular matter, and that's how it happened. Um, you know, so it really was a referral, um, which is which is what you I think alluding to is that personality of the lawyer. You know, because there are many lawyers, and you'd often hear, "Well, that guy is really good. Mm. Oh, I really like that style," and mm. it really is about that. Because ultimately, if you're working with clients for a long period of time, you got to like them. Mm. And they've got to like you. Mm. Um, and if that synergy and energy isn't there, it's very difficult. Um, so for me, that was how my first client started. Yeah. Just coming back now to within the, the context of the practice where you've got people that are working for you and they, let's say they're doing a, a, a contract. Mm. Do you check their work? Yes, all the time. <laughs> yeah. Can't compromise on quality and excellence. And, you know, Who checks I've, your work? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I actually sometimes do have people checking my work, um, having another set of more experienced eyes reviewing something when I'm uncertain. But I've got to back myself, mm. you know, um, and that's how I do it. I back myself and I apply myself all the time um, and make sure that I'm on point all the time. And when I'm not feeling on point, I trust my gut. Mm -hmm. I follow my gut and I know I'm not feeling on point. And then I get another set of eyes to check myself. Uh, or just to talk to another colleague and talk about a particular matter and how I'm approaching a legal um, challenge and my solution at the end of the day. But ultimately, I back myself. Do you work uh, only within the South African uh, legal framework or outside? Only South African. Only South African. Yeah. 
Um, and how would and then this is maybe just uh, just always wanted to know mm. how how would a a company that operates in two legal um, jurisdictions, jurisdictions yeah. but with very different types of legal systems mm. how do how do they contract across those jurisdictions do they mm. choose one one law. Mm. So always I wanted, you know, you generally, hear, generally. And, and remember there's, interna there's an international framework, yeah. you know, um, that obviously depending on the matter and depending on the contract that they can lean towards. But ultimately, from a litigation point of view, that's really the crux of it. You know, you actually apply the, they've got to choose where they want to litigate and that will be the governing law. Um, but our international framework is quite helpful. And so when it comes to litigation, for example, you can refer to the international frameworks. Now I'm going to ask mm. you a tough question. You mm. See, I just diverted you with a <laughs> tough question. If one of the big guys came to, to buy you mm. now, would you say yes? No. Why not? I, I knew you'd say that. <laughs> okay. But why not? What is it that, uh, that what is it? You know, it's, it's something that I've been thinking about. Mm. Um, it's the same question about what inspires me to do what I do, or mm. what inspired me to leave big law and, and start the practice. Um, and I think it's just, it's really a very personal journey mm. for me. You know, I'd done my time at, at big law, and I think my personal journey was saying, well, take the leadership that I felt within, take all of this angst that I felt about transformation in our country in the legal space, and start something and do it differently and be a change maker. Um, if I stop now, I'm not gonna live up to that dream. Mm. You know, I'm not going to live up to my own personal goals and that I've set for myself to, to be the change that I want to see. Um, and it sounds really philosophical, mm. um, but sometimes that's what you need, I think, you know, um, to keep you going, the dream of wanting to, to build something. Um, and something meaningful that's going to be a, um, a change for the country. There is a, a big view that AI is actually a mm. big threat, particularly mm -hmm. to commercial law. Yeah, yeah. How are you thinking about artificial intelligence? Mm. I'm thinking about it in terms of our business process. Um, and as you say, in commercial, in the commercial space, the automated contracts and those sort of things. So I'm starting to research on that quite a bit mm -hmm. um, to see how we can improve our systems. Um, perhaps silly of me to think that AI won't replace lawyers mm -hmm. um, in the immediate future, but we've got a plan. So even as a small law firm, we're thinking about how do we incorporate that into our business and add value. What's been the most exciting part? Of, because, you know, we talk about always the, the tough part of, of this journey. But there's mm. certain parts from my experience that always keep you inspired. What are those, what, mm. what, where are those moments? Give us an example of one of those moments where you thought, I'm in the right place, in the, doing the right thing. You know, it happens every week. I think shifting from working in and on your business all the time, it's got its own challenges. But every time you land a new piece of business, yeah. you think, oh, it's not as doom and gloom. Mm. Um, you get recognized and clients say, thank you, that was great. We really enjoyed working with you. You think, wow, you know, if I was in a big law firm, I'd be doing exactly the same and delivering exactly the same. But yet, even in this boutique outfit, the client is still expressing their gratitude for the excellence that you've delivered. So those moments are really, you know, or you come up with a unique legal solution. And I know those two seem conflicting, um, but sometimes you do come up with a creative solution and you think, this is awesome. 
I'm so glad I'm doing it in my space, on my time and in my way. You know, I think those are the highlights for me and, and they week to week, I'm sure you'll appreciate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're going to have to take a break now. When we come back, uh, I'm going to try and give some insight in, in how to think about uh, building the practice. Welcome back to the panel discussion today with uh, Suzanne Britton, who is the founder and CEO of Britton Reinecke. They are a commercial law firm. Now, for those of you who don't know what commercial law is, it's business uh, law. It's about contracting, business to business, business uh, legal interactions, for lack of a better word. So let me, let me start by some of the thoughts, because to me, and I've, you've heard me use the word practice, practice, practice quite a few times. Yeah. Um, and why I'm generally using that, because for me, people in the, the legal fraternity, the medical fraternity, the accounting fraternity, mm. pretty much um, have the same nuance, mm. nuanced but similar experience of how to set up this thing called a practice, where it's an accounting practice, yeah. a medical practice, a legal practice, etc where there's this mystique around it mm. and there's certain sort of uh, laws on, uh, you know, mm. societal laws on how you should or mm. shouldn't act and then there are actual laws on, on how, uh, how you should act. Mm. So me, for me, there are three things that I would concentrate on right now. For me, the whole specialization, I think, is, is very, very important and it's, very, it's, it's much easier said than done because, quite frankly, anyone who brings you work is, is great work right now, right? Yeah. But there's a difference between work you take on and work that you hunt. And mm. hunting is also a very different thing in your space mm. than in other spaces. It's not, as we said, picking up the funds and do you Correct. need legal services today. Yeah. So for me, the, the, the whole thing is around what your channel partners. In other words, your referral. I asked you who was your first mm. client and how you got that. Mm. And it's exactly how I think the most, how, how I, when I work with other practices, yeah. The same thing is what, who are your CPs, who are your mm. channel partners, and your relationship with them, because then you've got leverage, you've got one too many. One, one, one individual um, is, is referring you perhaps two or three people a year, yeah. maybe two or three people a month if you're lucky, but that it's, you've got leverage over that one. So for every contact point you have, it's a, a, you're getting leverage. And to me, it's about being very, very deliberate on who those channel partners are, number one. Number two, what your interaction is. And number three, uh, relating to that, is what your feedback is to them. So if somebody refers to you, phone them up and say, first of all, thank you. Correct. And this went X1 direction. Mm -hmm. it, we, we won the case, and I just wanted to give you that feedback. And it mm -hmm. builds that relationship there, and it reinforces their confidence to pass on. So that's a very deliberate strategy, and I would sit down very deliberately and try and work out, and I keep using this word of, of who to go after. The, 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 the second um, thing for me is around uh, your um, brand, is about building the brand. I think you've got a huge opportunity with your surname. I think you've got a play on words, the Britain. It's memorable because of that. Yes. Britain has associative power just because of the brand Britain has. As, as, an, as a name, as a couple yes. of letters. I would very much um, build the brand and work very hard on building the brand and what that stands for, okay? Mm. And also being very deliberate uh, uh, about that. 
And that brings me to my last point, which is the words I've used on both accounts, which is the word deliberate. Yes. And you spoke about this, this, this constant dilemma about working on and in your business. And all entrepreneurs feel that. It's, you know, you're always in, in, in that space. To me, um, it's about you and your team, okay, deliberately on a, every week in a specific meeting mm-hmm. called Channel Partners, like laying it out and putting that straight. It's not just mm-hmm. you. And this mm-hmm. is, you, you have to broaden that in terms of you and your team about, okay, our Channel Partner strategy. What are we doing about it? How many did we visit? Well, how have we done, etc. And what is our relationship with them? Number two, what have we done is a brand, brand meeting. And so by isolating it into a meeting, because law- lawyers like the, those the one-hour units or <laughs> half-hour units or 15-minute units, yeah. you like those units. By actually seeing that yourself as your own client, okay, and that's an important thing I'm saying, seeing yourself as your own client, mm. okay, and then dedicating that, that, time. that, that time that you would to your client, to yourself, in that one-hour unit, Okay, mm. that to me is what I mean by deliberate. Mm. So really, that, those are, I think you've got a huge, huge ad- advantage now with, with your, your brand. Thank uh, you. r- really huge. I think you've got a huge advantage in terms of how you stand out from, from the rest, that you are different. Um, and yeah, I, I, I would particularly be, I know it's easy for me as an outsider to mm. say that, but really I, I've had exposure to, to you before. And I think you actually don't see what you have, okay? You've got huge, huge advantage in the market right now. And um, I just think that you're just missing, you just need to be tapped into that groove to, to see it to get propelled. Mm-hmm. Deliberate brand channel partners. Got that. Got that. Thank you. Up next. What I did do and what I've used many, many times over the years is to figure out who are the a-team within the A-team. It's what we call the yes people. This is the Big Small Business Show. Thanks for joining us again. Now in the studio with us today, we have Lee Nike. He is the CEO of TransUnion Africa. And uh, we've had Lee on the show before, and we were speaking previously about turning around a business. And part of turning around a business is to have the right people in place. Welcome back, Lee. And today we're going to be talking about how to build this A-team. Thanks for having me along. Sure. So, so how, do we, how, do we, how do we think about that? We come into a business, and, uh, or we've got people there. Maybe we've just worked out that they're not the A-team. Okay. Like how do you, in, in, a, in a context like South Africa with our labor law, okay, like let's call it evacuate the B team and introduce the A team, how does that actually happen? It's quite a complex conversation, the one we're having, and it depends on many things. I think probably it's worth starting with any organization, whether you are in the people business or in the non-people business, is that people are centric to your success. I think understanding the role of people in success and culture together people in its very role is important. And I think it's important you think about A-teams. What does an A-team mean? Because mm. an A-team will be contextualized to the organization mm. you've worked in. I've worked in many industries across many, many years. 
and every A team has been different. I think a key thing for any CEO or leader coming into an organization is actually figuring out what this concept of A-Team is. In my specific context, one of the first things I had to do when I took on this new role is start to understand what good looked like. Mm. In my observation, what would I need to have in the organization as a culture, as a set of values and beliefs that would epitomize every single person I had, whether they were there or whether they were hired into the organization. Why is that important? It's important because we've got to understand what good looks like. You won't necessarily see good when you walk through the corridors and as you start to put down your reference point, you can start to adjudicate whether people fit that. Now you did mention the point about you know, labor law in the country. As you start to think about change, it's important to know that change is never an overnight thing. It's a journey over many, many days, weeks, and months. What I did do and what I've used many, many times over the years is to figure out who are the A-team within the A-team. It's what we call the yes people, mm -hmm. right? These are the people that immediately subscribe to the vision of where you're taking the organization, and you're actually able to double down on their understanding of your business and your strategy. And almost they are key to helping infuse this within the organization. Why is the yes people also important? In an organization of many hundred people, you're never gonna personally do what you need to do to change the culture or to, you know, to distribute your vision across the multiple layers of the organization. So understanding who the yes guys are important. Equally so, having a first view within the first hundred days typically of who the no's and the maybes are. The no's are people that are clearly gonna be destructive to organizational value. They may be successful in other roles, but not in the key role that they are. The maybes are people that you're not sure of completely in the organization. They have an existing role that is creating value, but you can't necessarily see their future value in the organization. And most CEOs that drive organizations start to figure out very, very quickly, almost inevitably within the first 100 days, the yeses, the noes, and the maybes. And as you start to do two things, one, figure out the yes, noes, and maybes, and start to understand what good looks like, you start to cascade, not just through your own efforts, but through the efforts of the team around you, this new way of working and thinking in your organization. I, I want to just ask the, the question around the A-team and the A-team for a particular CEO. In other words, that let's assume that the values and the culture, you know, ceteris paribus, you know, all things being equal, sure. but you change the leader, okay, and your personality is different. Do you require then a, a dovetail in terms of who your A-team is? Would you, if we have had the same values and the same vision, would your A-team look different to my A-team? That's right, it, it possibly could look different. We could have similarities in what we expect of our people. I think it's important to figure out what we expect of people generally, almost as your own personal re reference benchmark that you kind of keep in your imagination. Mm. Uh, what you would find as you walk into an organization, as you know what you like and what you've always used to work with, you've got to have a team that is behind the CEO. So understanding what good looks like is the first step. You may not find the A team even within your organization. Mm. There are many strategies to transforming a business. Some of them include injecting people from the outside as turnaround or transformation agents into the organization. So your point is clear. You may find when you get there that what you have has good enough to evolve to your level of expectation, or you may need to bring in a new change agent that represents to your bigger organization what in the mind of a new leader good looks like. And, and do, do 
leaders who move from company to company generally take their A teams with them. Or, t- or, or, or is it contextual as well, that A team worked in that and they wouldn't work in this? I think it depends on the preference of the CEO. Some CEOs are focused on entrepreneurship and building out teams. I think building out a good leadership in South Africa is important to future success, as opposed to necessarily dragging the same team around. It does depend on preference. What I will tell you is that people work for people, not for organizations. Mm. So one of the very best things I can do for my organization is help inculcate in my direct reports what good looks like and what the organization needs. So as they discharge their responsibilities, they're able to think along those same lines. So should something happen to myself or I'm out of the office for a few weeks, the business and the way of working remains as a sustainable practice. Last question just quickly around um when, when you are bringing in a new team, um, do they necessarily have to go into the same roles that they were before? Because we hear stories within organizations that people were in a certain role and then they come into another organization in a completely different role. The character is what counts. Their, their capability counts, but their specific skills might differ. So. Do you get the question? Sure, sure. So we, we call this form follows function, right? Yeah. You'd actually find as you evolve an organization that what kept you up and running and, and growing 10 years ago isn't good enough for your future success. So when you think about form follows function, you may find the critical attributes or skills in a certain individual, but you may need to put them into a new role. I've even gone as far in my experience as putting people into utility roles while we transition in the, in the short term to a new way of thinking and in the medium term change them out into a final role that had not been created initially. So that flux is acceptable. It's normal to find your way in an organization. And if you have the right people around you, you can actually partner together in figuring out what good looks like. Linak, uh, absolute pleasure having you incredibly articulate and, and I actually understand what you're saying, which is wonderful. You take big, complex uh, concepts and you make it really easy for us to understand. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. Well, that's it uh, for this slot. Uh, do stay tuned to find out what's coming up next. How do I go about actually creating my own tagline? This is the Big Small Business Show and welcome back uh, to studio with us. Today we have Paola Sartini, she's CEO of Brand Quantum. And today we're going to be talking about taglines or bylines. Is there a difference, first of all, between a tagline and a byline? Well, I think both of them kind of allude to the fact that it's that little extra description to the logo or what the business is all about. So if you think tag along or byline, it's a bit like a headline that Mm. describes what the business is all about. So so let's just say, what is is a a descriptor? Uh, Is it uh, something else? 
So interestingly, um, when you look at taglines over time, uh, generally businesses start out with a descriptive tagline. Mm. So because people don't know who they are, uh, there's not much recognition in the marketplace, they describe what it is that they do. Um, and obviously as the business evolves and consumers identify the, the logo with what the business is about, they've experienced it, then it evolves to more of a promise. Um, and the promise is generally what you're going to do for your end consumer or customer. So there definitely is a difference and it shows the evolution of the business. So if I use like, and I'm, I'm going to do some promotion now. So if I yes. use this logo here, when we started off, it's exactly that. We started, we grow entrepreneurial businesses. Yes. <clears throat> and then that grew to, we grow profitable entrepreneurial businesses, both descriptors. Yes. And as the business grew and we went through a rebrand, then it came to the promise, which is accelerating success. Yes. And that's what we do. So we've actually, as RaceCorp, we've followed exactly that path. Yes. So let's just talk about that, that change, about the, the change from, in our instance, we grow profitable entrepreneurial businesses to accelerating success. Are there rules around the fact that you should do it gradually or can you just do it radically, you know, just into from one thing to the other, does it create all sorts of confusion? So firstly, I think one can have a little bit more fun with a tagline than you can with a logo, right? Because a logo or the identity has to live for a long period of time. Taglines do tend to change over time because as the market changes, um, you want to stay relevant and there's nothing wrong with, with changing the promise that you make. I mean, mm. consumers expect uh, there to be a change with a tagline. So I think the, the rules are that if you're really struggling to come up with a tagline, chances are that the positioning of the business or what you're trying to do is still not quite clear enough. Mm. Um, and you know, perhaps one should really just focus on exactly what you're doing and what your point of differentiation is and then come and revisit. So there's absolutely no reason why you need to have a tagline, but what's great about a tagline is that it really becomes a shortcut for people to understand what the business is about and what they're likely to get out of it. Um, if you look at more FMCG brands, consumer facing brands, they tend to elicit um, emotion. Uh, mm. and, and that's really what you want to get to, where people look at the tagline and they go, sure, Race Corp acceler accelerating success. That is something that I really want and I relate to. Um, because that incentivizes me to want to get involved as opposed to you describing what you do. Okay, great, you've told me, but actually I want to call, it, call to action. So when you get to a point where the line is actually uh, motivating people okay. to actually come and engage with you, then obviously you know you're on the right track. I spoke about our change of logo, that we changed our logo and then our tagline yes. at the same time. Apps has just gone through yes. something similar where they changed their actual logo and the tagline. Um, is that something that uh, sort of some unspoken rule about when you change your tagline or that the logo changes as well in terms of the I think that's a great question. I think in the case of APSA, um, you know, they really were looking to uh, physically show a change um, in terms of the business and I think they really um, sh are trying to shift from explaining what the business does because it's a very traditional business mm. to eliciting, um, eliciting an emotion and it's really their tagline and their positioning is about possibility mm. and allowing consumers to see a new 
possibility and engage in a different kind of way. So I think um, it's very difficult when you do a brand change um, like they've done uh, because people tend to criticize and, you know, uh, and, and have all sorts of things to say, but they actually want to see the physical evidence of what you're promising. So um, the, the fact that they've gone with something around possibility actually leaves it quite uh, open in mm. terms of what consumers can expect from them. And I think that's what they really, if anything, if they can just get consumers to understand that um, there's a, they are engaging with them in a new way and that they're likely to be um, new open possibilities coming from them, I think that's what they're after with that. Just, just now to get practical, Around, around actually creating one. So I'm sitting, I'm watching this, I'm going, yeah, I'm not a creative. I've, I've got some very um, standard type of product or service that there's a multitude of competitors out there. How do I go about actually creating my own tagline? So I think the first thing to start off with, and we all know it's the hardest thing to come down to the positioning of the business. Um, it always sounds so easy, but it comes back to understanding who's the target audience, what's the real differentiator in the business, um, what is the product offering, because often you start off you know, with a certain product or service and then it, it evolves over time. Understanding who the competition is and what they're saying as well, because you obviously have to take that into account mm. when coming up with the, with the positioning line, um, especially when you are well known in the marketplace. Mm. Um, and then the other aspect that you really want to think about is what is the go-to-market strategy? I mean, the taglines that come to mind, if you think of them, are the ones that you can almost hear in your head. Mm. And those are brands that have spent a lot of money um, building you know, the equity around those taglines, and there's, they engage multiple senses. So mm. the auditory sense you know, is one that definitely, I mean, if you think of, of any of the, of the major lines, McDonald's, you know, I'm loving it, or um, you know, if you think back a little bit to uh, Morkel's, I mean, everybody dreaded that line, you know, your two-year guarantee store, but everybody absolutely mm. remembers it because mm. you remember the auditory, the auditory aspect, mm. and so you engage. So when you're starting out, you generally don't have that much, you know, a budget to spend on, on advertising. So then, you know, the, the need for that line to be absolutely clear and for it to work in an auditory sense is not as high. But obviously, as you have a business that's established, then it's going to need to work almost in a jingle way. We've got, we've got one minute left, just very, very quickly. In terms of the don'ts, are there any like, you should never do this in, in, a, in a tagline? Gosh, uh, I mean, there are lots of don'ts like there are with logos, but obviously copying is a no-no because, yeah, I mean, you right. are putting yourself in, in the wrong place, but also putting yourself in a, in a negative starting place. You always want to start from neutral and build forward. So if you're saying something that's going to potentially elicit a negative response, then that, that's a definitely no-no. It's, it's like a name that, you know, you're already, if you're in a certain marketplace uh, or a different country and it elicits a negative response, then you don't want to be there. So, um, uh, you know, one of my favorite no-nos was in the sanitary business. Mm. And the client actually came up with a line um, and it was loose. It was portable loose. And he said, Paula, I've got the line. It's, um, we are the number one in the number two business. <laughs> And that wasn't a great line. <laughs> <laughs> on on that uh, note, on that tagline, we're, we're going to have to cut it there. We're going to have to wrap it up. And uh, thanks for for.
coming through and explaining. Um, I think it's a very important part of, and it's quite an easy thing to do for small businesses to do. And I think it's something that's uh, overlooked and something that uh, um, can serve you into the long run. So thanks for sharing your insights and uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Lon. Well, that's it uh, for, for this slot. Please stay tuned uh, for my thoughts and uh, ideas on the entrepreneurial journey. Well, it's time for my reflections for today. And I want to take uh, some of my reflections from my interview with Suzanne Britton uh, today. Uh, An incredibly poignant uh, interview and, some, uh, and, and she's dealing with issues that many professionals are facing in trying to build their practices. Um, and the one thing that came from, from that interview for me was what I'm calling you are your own client. And it's very important as small businesses to see themselves as their own clients. Uh, what that means is that they have to give themselves the, the requisite disciplined time to build their business. Because often we hear on the show this, this concept of in my business and on my business, which was popularized by uh, Michael E. Gerber from the E-Myth. But very few people don't use that terminology, but you hear them often saying, I always battle between the two. The answer really is to have the discipline to create the meetings in your diary around that where you see yourself as your own client. So the first thing is if you're in a partnership, have partner meetings once a week, once a month, whatever the case may be. I personally have one once a week for one and a half hours every week. We have an agenda. It's a legitimate agenda which I go through with my partner and I've been doing that for years and years and years. The second thing to, to do is specific meetings to build your business. Looking at the different people within your business and saying, okay, here's an hour we're going to spend on every week. We're going to talk about how we build our sales department, how we build our marketing department, how we build a X department or X part of the business. I label it and I call it strategy meetings for sales, for marketing, etc. And those meetings are very much part of my diary on a weekly or, or monthly basis, depending on what specifically it is. The third point is even more important for me. It's then this having specific time put in where you start managing the outputs of those meetings. Because very often those meeting, meetings can turn into talk shops where we say, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. The output of those previous build meetings or strategy meetings has to be tasks. And there has to be a meeting where you discuss what's happened and what's not happened and the reasons why. Very important discipline. And I think just uh, one extra bonus sort of thing to think about is around your product or, your, or your, your service that you provide is to have product review meetings where you are very critically looking at your product on a monthly or bi-monthly basis where you're coming back and saying, is this really working? Am I BSing myself that this is working, uh, but it's really, really not? And how do I work out whether it is or isn't? Is it through sales? Is it through feedback? Is it through my sales team? Is it through the feedback that I get directly from the client? But it is the discipline to put that into your diary. That's it, That's it for my reflections for today. Do remember, if you think it, write it down and make it a reality.
The Big Small Business Show is brought to you by Chartered Accountants of South Africa. Transform the future of your business. Partner with the CASA today. Everywhere you go, MTN.